Chapter 8 of Autumn Leaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autumn Leaves, edited by Anna Wells Abbott. To the Nearsighted. Pure blind and short sighted friends, you will listen to me, you will sympathize with me. For you know by painful experience what I mean when I say that we nearsighted people do not receive from our hawk-eyed neighbors that sympathy and consideration to which we are justly entitled. If we were blind, we should be abundantly pitied. But as we are only half blind, such comments as these are all the consolation we get. Oh, nearsighted, is she? Yes, it is very fashionable nowadays for young ladies to carry eyeglasses and call themselves nearsighted. Or, pooh! It's all affectation. She can see as well as anybody if she chooses. She thinks it's pretty to half shut her eyes and cut her acquaintances. I meet my friend A some morning, who returns my salutation with cold politeness and says, How cleverly you managed to cut me at the concert last night. At the concert? I did not see you. Oh, no? You could see well enough to bow to Miss Pretty B and her handsome cousin. But as for seeing your old schoolmate two seats behind her... Of course you are too nearsighted. In vain I protest that I could not see her. That three yards is a great distance to my eyes. She leaves me with an incredulous smile and that most provoking phrase, Oh yes, I suppose so, and distrusts me ever afterwards. Alas, we see just enough to seal our own condemnation. Who is free from this malady? As I look around in society... I see starry, glassy ellipses on every side, in the place where eyes ought to grow, and perhaps most of the unfortunate owls get along very comfortably with their artificial eyes. But imagine a bashful youth, awkward and nearsighted, whose friends dissuade him from wearing glasses. Is there in the universe an individual more unlucky, more blundering, more sincerely to be pitied? See that little boy who, having put on his father's spectacles, is enjoying for the first time a clear and distinct view of the evening sky. "'Oh, is that pretty little yellow dot a star?' exclaims the delighted child. "'Poor innocent! A star had always been to him a dim, cloudy spot, a little nebula, which the magic glass has now resolved, and he can hardly believe that this brilliant point is not an optical illusion. But when his mother assures him that the stars always appear so to her— and he turns to look in her face, he says, Why, mother, how beautiful you look! Please to give me some little spectacles all my own. She could not resist this entreaty. Who could? And little Squire Specs does not mind the shouts of his companions or the high-sounding nicknames they give him. He so rejoices in what seems to him a new sense, a second sight. I was summoned the other day to welcome a family of cousins from a distant state, who I had not seen for a very long time. They were accompanied, I was told, by a Boston lady, a stranger to us. I entered the room with considerable impressment, but when my eye detected the dim outline of a circle of bonneted figures, I stopped in despair in the middle of the room, not knowing which was which, or whom I ought to speak to first, and at last made an embarrassed half-bow, half-courtesy to the company in general. A confused murmur of greetings and introductions followed, and throwing aside my air of stiff, ceremonious politeness, I rushed with a smiling face to the nearest lady, 
shook hands with her in the most cordial manner, and then in passing bowed formally to the next, who I concluded was the stranger. What then was my surprise and utter confusion when she caught me by the hand and, drawing me towards her, kissed me emphatically several times? How do you do, dear? Have you quite forgotten me? Ah, you don't remember the times when you used to ride a cock-horse on my knee to Banbury Cross to see the old lady get on her white horse? What could I say? I was petrified. I could not smile. I could not speak. My only feeling was mortification at my most awkward mistake. Yet I ought to have become accustomed to such embarrassments, for they are of very frequent occurrence. Why, Julia, what is the matter? How strangely your eyes look! My sister at this exclamation turns round, and I discover that from the other end of the room I have been gazing at the unexpressive features of her back hair, which is twisted in a pug or bob, which is the correct term, and surmounted by a tortoiseshell comb. But in the whole course of my numerous mistakes and blunders, whether ludicrous, serious, or embarrassing, I believe I have never mistaken a cow for a human being, as was done by old Dr. E. It was many years ago, when Boston Common was still used as a pasture, and cows were daily to be met in the crooked streets of the city, that this gentleman, distinguished for the courtesy and old-school politeness of his manner, no less than for his extreme nearsightedness, was walking at a brisk pace one winter's day, and saw, just before him, a lady, as he thought, richly dressed in furs. As he was passing her, he thought he perceived that her fur boa, or tippet, had escaped from her neck, and carefully lifting the end of it with one hand, he made a low bow, raising his hat with the other, and said in his blandest tone, "'Madam, you're losing your tippet.' And what thanks did the worthy doctor receive, do you think, for this truly kind and polite deed? Why, the lady merely turned her head, gave him a wondering stare with her large eyes, and said, "'Moo!' As an offset to this instance of courtesy and good breeding lavished on a cow, let me give you, as a parting bon boucher, another cow antidote, where, as you will see, there was no gentle politeness wasted." The Reverend Dr. H. was an eccentric old man, nearsighted, of course, all eccentric people are, who lived a small country town in this neighborhood. Numerous are the traditionary accounts of his peculiarities, of his odd manners and customs, which I have heard, but it is only of one little incident that I am now going to speak. A favorite employment of this good man was the care of his garden, and he might be seen any pleasant afternoon in summer rigged out in a hideous yellow calico robe or blouse with a dusty old black straw hat stuck on the back of his head hoeing and digging in that beloved patch of ground one day as he was thus occupied his wife emerged from the house dressed in a dark brown gingham and bearing in her hand some muslins which she began to spread upon the gooseberry bushes to whiten she was very busily engaged, so that she was not aware that her husband was approaching her with a large stick, until she felt a smart blow across her shoulders, and heard his peculiar sharp voice shouting in her ears, "'Go long, old cow! Go long, old cow!' End of chapter 8 Recording by Lynn Handler